You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Ducci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. The music in this week's episode is performed by Kevin McLeod, and in last week's episode by Lamino. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every Wednesday, head on over to your Apple Podcasts app or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Those are the opening and closing lines to Robert Service's most famous poem, from which this episode draws its name. For all its surrealist narrative, it is, in reality, a playful depiction of the crushingly brutal life in store for prospectors during the Klondike Gold Rush of the 1890s. Over the course of four years, from 1896 to 1899, over 100,000 prospectors ventured into the icy reaches of the northern Canadian Yukon. The Yukon Territory covers over 186,000 square miles. Its current total population is a little under 36,000. For a brief period, the Klondike boomed. Due to the fact that only a handful of towns exist in the region, gold could only travel through a few ports. As is often the case with gold rushes, the people that created the infrastructure to cater to the miners often became far richer than even the most successful prospector. In this week's episode, we'll learn about the meteoric rise and ignoble death of the Klondike Gold Rush, and everything that came with it. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 29, The Cremation of Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell, though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd closed, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel to toe, he turned to me and, Cap, he says, I'll cash this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no, and then he says with a sort of moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chilled clean through to the bone. Yet taint being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. And so I want you to swear that foul or fair, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. On August 16, 1896, an American prospector, George Carmack, his wife, Kate, 
her brother Jim Mason and Mason's nephew, Dawson Charlie, abided by a suggestion from the Canadian prospector Robert Henderson to look for gold on the banks of Bonanza Creek, a tributary to the Klondike River. They, quite literally, struck gold. Kate Carmack, Jim Mason, and Dawson Charlie were all members of the Tagish First Nation, and so George Carmack was listed as the official discoverer due to the fact that they didn't know if mining companies would recognize a claim made by an indigenous person. The land along the creek was divided into four claims, two for Carmack, one for Mason, and one for Charlie. Canadian law dictated that a given person could only hold one claim, but a loophole allowed Carmack to file a second claim under his wife's name. On August 17th, they registered their claims at the closest police station, and in an instant, the rush began. By the time August ended, every inch of land on the Bonanza had been claimed. Prospectors then began laying claim on the creeks and streams that fed the Bonanza, and discovered quantities of gold far larger than the initial Carmack claim. The race was on. The Canadian winter prevented news of the gold from getting out, and the ships to transport the gold from getting in. But by Christmas 1896, the news reached Circle Alaska, itself a gold boom town known as the Paris of Alaska. By the time 1896 drew to a close, Circle had all but been abandoned as its 1,200 residents flocked to the Yukon in droves by dog sled. At this point, the gold rush wasn't really a rush yet. News of the vast riches found in the Klondike had only reached sparsely populated and disparate mining communities. That would soon change. By June 1897, conditions were good enough to allow ships from American cities to take on loads of gold at the ports of Dye and Skagway. On July 15th and 17th, the first of these ships, the Excelsior and the Portland, arrived back in their home ports of San Francisco and Seattle, carrying with them a reported combined $1.13 million in gold. Not only is this over $1 billion in 2010 adjusted prices, but it ended up being an incorrect estimation. The real number was higher. The response was massive and immediate. The panics of 1893 and 1896 had caused widespread unemployment and financial uncertainty. As a result, United States banknotes, then backed by the value of gold, began to inflate in value, pricing scores of people out of the labor market. The gold rush was perfectly timed in that it presented an opportunity for Americans who were anxious about their gold-backed currencies to go straight to the source of what gave their money value. This impact is seen in the fact that even though the rush was located in the far northern reaches of Canada, between 60 and 80% of the prospectors were either American citizens or recent immigrants to America. After the news of the rush reached American cities, mass job resignations on all levels followed suit. In Seattle, this included people from all walks of life, including the mayor, William Wood. It is also important to note the role that newspapers had in both drumming up excitement for the rush and romanticizing the prospectors. The Klondike Gold Rush helped propel Seattle even further ahead as the economic leader of the Pacific Northwest, as newspapers based in the city propagated the story that the only way to reach the Yukon was through Seattle. They called it the Gateway to Alaska. There was a massive amount of money to be made in the supplying of prospectors. 
In fact, the sum total spent by all the prospectors in order to supply themselves and reach the Yukon was more than the value of all the gold extracted during the rush. By virtue of its location in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle won out against San Francisco in the war for those customers. The newspapers invented a term for the feverish obsession that the two cities had over the gold rush. They called it clondositis. Contrary to the idea perpetuated by Seattle newspapers, there were, in fact, many ways to reach the Klondike. There were a number of routes that went entirely through Canada in order to avoid American customs. The majority of prospectors arrived in the Alaskan ports of Dye or Skagway. From there, they needed to travel over 30 miles of mountains just to reach the Yukon Territory. Then they had to travel down a number of rivers until they reached the Klondike. The trip was brutal and could oftentimes be deadly. On Skagway's White Pass Trail, the path width could sometimes reach as narrow as two feet. The Canadian government required prospectors to carry one year's worth of food to prevent starvation. This, combined with their other supplies, meant that they carried over one ton of cargo with them. When traversing White Pass, they could only carry around 65 pounds of goods at a time. The conditions on White Pass were especially harmful to one of the most important members of the expedition. Conditions proved so lethal to their pack animals that prospectors gave it a new name. Dead Horse Pass. The Chilkoot Trail, which led from Dye, was not much better. Parts of the trail were far too steep for animals, which meant that native guides could make significant amounts of money working as packers, someone who carried goods up the trail for a modern equivalent of around $27 per pound. Chilkoot Trail was especially vulnerable to avalanches, and on April 3rd, 1898, one took the lives of over 60 prospectors. Once they reached the head of the Yukon River, they had to build rafts and travel 500 miles downriver to the gold fields. By May of 1898, a month where over 7,000 boats traveled down the river, the prospectors had clear-cut almost all of the surrounding forest. Several hundred people died navigating the rapids on the Yukon River. Those that successfully made it down the river had more struggles in store just ahead. Life in the gold rush towns was brutish, dangerous, and unsanitary. John Muir described Skagway as, quote, a nest of ants taken into a strange country and stirred up by a stick. Dawson City, Canada, where a majority of the prospectors settled to look for gold, was, by contrast, relatively law-abiding. It was initially a filthy city made up of tents and hovels crisscrossed with mud streets, and ended up being a nexus of gold rush wealth. They were paradoxical towns of both extreme excess and extreme poverty. Prospectors paid for their goods at the general store and drinks at the saloon with gold dust so carelessly that you could make a tidy sum from sweeping the floor. Those with money were expected to regularly gamble in high-stakes games often involving the modern equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars. They built grand opera houses accessible by unpaved, mud-mired streets. While tins of butter cost an inflation-adjusted $140, the wealthy had belts made out of gold coins. While typhoid and diphtheria ravaged through the population, dancer Gertie Lovejoy had diamonds set between her front teeth. 
Eventually, this was one of the things that contributed to the decline of the Klondike boomtowns. Dawson, in particular, became too sophisticated and extravagant for the prospectors it was supposed to serve. They were used to a rough and relatively lawless living, and by the end of the 1890s, not even Skagway, previously described by Sam Steele, superintendent of the Canadian Northwest Mounted Police, as little better than a hell on earth, about the roughest place in the world, could provide that. The civilization that they had been so eager to escape in the wilds of Canada had caught up with them. It would be unfair, though, to imply that the state of the boomtowns was the major influencing factor in the decline and end of the Klondike Gold Rush. By the middle of 1898, people started to find the economic situation in Dawson City untenable. Real wages were significantly depressed. So, bit by bit, people started to trickle towards home. In that same year, the United States entered the Spanish-American War, and not only was the cold rush so championed by the newspapers wiped from their headlines, but going to the Klondike in search of mineral wealth actually started to become unpatriotic. If these had been the only factors, perhaps the gold rush would have continued for a bit longer. After all, the Klondike is still occasionally mined for gold to this day. But it wasn't to be. In September 1898, three men discovered vast amounts of gold lying on the ground in Nome, Alaska. By winter of that year, the news got out to surrounding communities. By spring, it reached the Klondike, and prospectors flocked to the city in droves. In a single week in August, over 8,000 people left Dawson. Seemingly in the blink of an eye, the Klondike gold rush was over. Its legacy and romanticism has influenced generations of poets, filmmakers, authors, and photographers. George Carmack eventually left his wife. He remarried and lived out the rest of his life in relative comfort. Jim Mason refused to just accept the mining royalties from his claim, which in their own right made him a very wealthy man. He would continue to prospect until his death in 1916, never to find another claim like Bonanza Creek. Dawson Charlie changed his name to Charles Henderson. He spent and drank like a king. He died on December 26, 1908, when he fell off the White Pass Railway Bridge. Drunk. The Koyakon, Tlingit, and Han, the native people who previously occupied the land ravaged by mining, were unable to recover from the impact of the gold rush. Though they initially made significant amounts of money working as outfitters, guides, and packers, the rivers and forests they relied upon for food were heavily damaged and polluted. They were moved to a reservation, where contaminated water and smallpox outbreaks decimated their population. By 1904, they required government aid to avoid mass starvation. The Klondike Gold Rush, like all others, was absorbed by history. Today, there are few remaining signs of the activity that propelled an empty corner of Canada into the limelight. The forests have since regrown. The machinery has rusted and rotted away. The rivers have been washed clean. Skagway and Dawson have largely returned to their pre-gold rush population levels. The only sign of their once inconceivable wealth are a few grand old buildings accessible from dusty, half-paid dirt roads.
Dae is a ghost town. The footprint of the gold rush is nearly erased. Like all others, people packed up, moved away, and forgot. History has been reclaimed by the Klondike. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried, horror-driven, with a corpse half-hit that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies, round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows, oh God, how I loathed the thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and a heavier grow, and on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake Labarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why and the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaming down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about, ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked, then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake LaBarge. I cremated Sam McGee. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.